There are several scenes that occur in the scriptures on this Maundy Thursday to which we could turn our attention. There's the extended discourse of our Lord in the upper room and his washing of the disciples' feet and his prediction of his agony and death, the fulfillment of the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. There's the prediction of the of the betrayal of Judas and Judas going out. And there is the scene out in the garden where he is captured and taken then before Herod and Pilate. But for me, the highest point this evening for our attention comes in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we turn there now in verse 36 of Matthew 26, as they have just completed their meal, as he has just washed his disciples' feet, and it says they sang a hymn, and then they went out, and it was night. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Could you men not watch, keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is possible for this cup to be taken away, unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. And he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near. And the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. This is God's word. And as I've said before, although I'm perfectly happy with the name of our congregation, if I ever had the opportunity to name a church, uh, maybe as a church planter or something, my preference would be to put before the congregation the, the name Gethsemane Presbyterian Church. I think it's one of the high points of all of Scripture. Now, I looked up this afternoon to see if anyone else agrees with me. There are only three, as far, maybe four, Presbyterian churches in America on Google that even use the name Gethsemane Presbyterian Church. So most of you would probably outvote me. And, and certainly, it's, it's a name not used in Presbyterian circles hardly at all for a name of a local church. But this is a really great moment in the life of our Savior and one to which we turn our attention now. What's so great about it? Well, first of all, is the magnitude, the, the, the dimension of his pain. He is in an internal and mental agony so unbearable that he felt like the pain alone could kill him then and there. Notice he says, verse 
He took 37, verse 37. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Now, he was a man of sorrows and was familiar with suffering. But this is of another order. And here again, our translation is a bit too mild. He was beside himself. Ekthambiasthai is the Greek word, a long construction, which means completely agitated and really sort of coming undone. Elsewhere we read that he was so agitated that his sweat became bloody as there was some kind of change in, in his body chemistry. So great was his, his intense emotional state because something was causing him tremendous perplexity. Really, he is reeling. He's dumbfounded. He's astonished. Darkness and horror beyond anything he could have anticipated now comes on him. He feels like he's disintegrating on the spot. Here we see just a little insight into the human nature of our Savior. We think most often of his divine nature and the uniqueness of that, but it's also doubly unique that he's both human and divine. And here in his human nature, he is nearly undone by what is about to happen. Not only the fear of death, as we'll see, but this divine aspect of it in that he is now about to be separated for the first and only time from his Father, from the Spirit. What a contrast this scene is to the example, for example, the death of Stephen or the martyrs that we hear about. It said that Stephen, when he faced death, had the face of an angel. And this is not that. This was a different death, different from what anybody else has ever faced before or since, because he was facing the cup. Could you not watch and pray? And uh, verse, verse 42, my father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. He has in mind not so much now the pains and the torture of the cross to come as the cup he's to bear of, our, of, of the full weight of our sin. Ezekiel 23 mentions this cup, this cup of evil and desolation, pain and desolation. And Isaiah 51, the top verse on our outline, mentions it. This is what your sovereign Lord says, your God who defends his people. See, I have taken out of your hand the cup that made you stagger. From that cup, the goblet of my wrath, you will never drink again. Jesus is about to drink from that cup. He knows that he's facing not just physical torture and death, but also the full measure of divine wrath on evil and the sin of his people. This would be placed on him rather than on us. And he was facing the torture of being separated from his father. One of the most painful things about death is unwanted separation from loved ones. Jesus is facing that prospect now. And it is about to overwhelm him. This Gethsemane pain is the horror of the one who lives wholly for the Father 
and the prospect of alienation from God due to his judgment on sin that Jesus will carry. Above us all, his first and only thought was always for communion with his Father. He withdrew to the lonely places to pray. It was clear that his affection was first, last, and always for the Father and the Spirit. That's where his inclinations and the intents of his heart always went. And he was about to lose, for the first time in all eternity, that intimate relationship with the one who had never been absent before, who had never forsaken him, and from whom he had never been estranged. Think of the loss of a loved one you've known all your life and who has grown most dear to you. This is worse. So he begs, don't let this happen. Now Stephen showed more courage, as I said before, than Jesus does. But Jesus is giving us not an uncourageous response to a challenge, but he's giving us insight to the depths to which he sank for us. The depths of that pain. He was a strong man, a man of faith, a man who labored and worked among others and was, not, was seen as one who certainly carried his weight, but this is a different kind of weight. Jonathan Edwards says, The conflict in Jesus' soul in this view of his last sufferings was dreadful beyond all expression or conception. It's true. None of us has felt this the way he did. None of us faced this prospect. Why is it particularly important that he experiences a foretaste of divine wrath so greatly now? He begins, as it were, to drink of the cup even in Gethsemane. He's not yet on the cross. He hasn't yet been consigned there or abandoned by his disciples. But passively absorbing the, the, the punishment of the cross was not all that he did for us. He also gained for us God's blessing. We get the reward from God that his righteous and sinless life deserved. This is blessing upon blessing and grace upon grace. He's not just going to stand in our place, but he's going to pour out upon us a new relationship as adopted children into his family that carries on to all eternity. Until now, Jesus knew what was to come. In fact, in John 13, he speaks of, he's, uh, it speaks of how the full measure of his love was now being displayed. He was willing to go. He said, I lay down my life. No one takes it from me. He's offering himself as our Savior, willingly. Yet until now, Jesus had known what was to come. He told his disciples that he was facing a supreme climax. From Cana until Lazarus is raising, he has been talking about it. But only now, in Gethsemane, is he experientially grasping what he is about to endure. No one ever faced suffering like this in order to love. Now, we don't know entirely what was going on in his mind. But Jonathan Edwards, as characteristic of him, gives us an extended paragraph on what he thinks is going on. So I quote, The agony of Jesus Christ was caused in these moments by a vivid and bright and full, immediate view of the wrath of God. Now, it was a quiet scene. I stop quoting Edwards here. 
It's a quiet scene. It's night. There's no ruckus going on. But he can see a full, immediate view of the wrath of God that lies right before him. God the Father, as it were, set the cup down before him, which was vastly more terrible than Nebuchadnezzar's furnace. He now had a near view of the furnace into which he was about to be cast. He stood and viewed the raging flames and the glowings of its heat, that he might know where he was going and what he was about to suffer. Christ was going to be cast into a dreadful furnace of wrath, and it was not proper that he should plunge himself into it blindfolded, as though not knowing how dreadful the furnace was. Part of the measure of this gift is that he fully knew what it was. He didn't wander into it and didn't have to be blindfolded to be obscured from it. Therefore God brought him and set him at the mouth of the furnace that he might look in and stand and view the fierce and raging flames. When he took that cup, knowing what he did, he was, so was his love to us infinitely more wonderful and his obedience to God infinitely more perfect. Why should I, he thought, who have been living from all eternity in the enjoyment of the Father's love, go to cast myself in such a furnace for them that can never require from me, <coughs> excuse me, that, they can, that can never satisfy me for it? Why should I yield myself to be thus crushed by the weight of divine wrath for them who have no love for me? <coughs> Excuse me, and are my enemies. They do not deserve any union with me, and they never did, and never will do anything to recommend themselves to me. Indeed, three times, all they could manage was sleep. He could have said all this, but he did not. That was, the, that was not the language of his heart. His sorrows abounded, but his love did much more abound. Christ's soul was overwhelmed with a deluge of grief, but this was from a deluge of love to sinners in his heart, sufficient to overflow the world and overwhelm the highest mountains of its sins. So those great drops of blood that fell to the ground were a manifestation of an ocean of love in the Savior's heart. And so we are are struck by the magnitude of his pain. Secondly, the magnitude of his actions. Perfect love and perfect obedience are now brought together. Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden, and the idea was, if you obey me, said the Lord, regarding the tree, you will live. Obey me and I will bless you. Now we're in another garden and a second Adam and another command to go to another tree in obedience. God says to the first Adam, Obey me about the tree and I will bless you. Adam didn't do it. But to the second Adam he said, that is Jesus, Obey me about the tree and I will crush you. And Jesus does. Obedience leads certainly to destruction. If you obey me, if you are faithful to me, I will forsake you, says the Father. I will cast you off and I will send your soul to hell. Adam faced a reward, life eternal, for obedience, and he fell. Jesus faced 
punishment for Adam's and our sin for obedience. And he did. Jesus is the first and the last person in history to be told that obedience would bring a curse. And that curse would fall on him. So what's the application? We couldn't have done this. What is the meaning of these things? These actions? This pain? First of all, I want you to notice the model of integrity we have here. This is his worst moment. This is his hardest thing. This is his darkest hour. And he still does the right thing. With nobody looking, least of all the disciples, in the dark. Are we the same kind of person in the dark that we are in public? He's a model of integrity. He's also a model of how to pray. At the same time, as he prays before the Father, he's brutally honest about his feelings. He says, I don't want this. Nothing in me wants this. I'm not eager to do this in any human sense of that term. I'm not glad about this. I'm not happily entering into this because I can't wait. And yet, he's absolutely submitted to the will of God. So when we pray, like Jesus, we can neither repress our feelings nor be ruled by them. We can be God-centered and yet human and honest at the same time. He's absolutely honest and absolutely obedient at the same time. Not Yet not what I will, but thy will be done. He wills what he does not want. Thirdly, he's a model of patience with people. The disciples have fallen asleep repeatedly. Yet he gives them some credit. He says, you know, I understand. I understand. I feel the same thing. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He was tempted in all points as we are. He understands when we can't do it. If at no other time, then certainly in Gethsemane, the depth of his humanness was so great that he fully understood everyone who ever did anything they didn't want to do or who failed in the attempt, who fell short. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He's saying, you let me down, but I know you are my friends and you mean well. So he finds something to praise in them. And it is a fulfillment beautifully of John 13, 1, where we read, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. All the way to the end. But at the same time, he's not a model for us. We've spoken of his integrity, of his prayer, and of his patience. But no one can live up to this standard. He's not a model, he's a savior as we have heard. He changes us from the inside out. He tells us how to live and gives us the power to do it. He doesn't just set a high standard and say, okay, now go for it. He says, this is the standard and I will be with you. 
Only if we see him as a substitute instead of a model can we have the ability to live according to this model. He is our substitute. If he had turned away in Gethsemane from this suffering and this cross, we would have been lost. But he didn't do that. Hell came down on him, and he would not let go of us. His love for us has already taken everything that the universe could throw at him, and he held fast. Do you think you are somehow going to upset him now? Is Jesus going to look at you and say, well, that does it. Infinite existential torment in the Garden of Gethsemane is one thing, but I can only take so much. (laughs) No. This is the full measure of his grace. It cannot be exhausted. So he's not going to say full existential, infinite torment in the Garden of Gethsemane is one thing, but I can only take so much. If this cup did not make him give up on us, nothing will. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, he says. I will never leave you nor forsake you. This is the love we've all been looking for all our lives. This is the love that a father wants for his children but falls short of. This is, the fa- this is the love that a husband wants to express to his wife, but always imperfectly. This is what we have been wanting from our parents and from our spouses, and we can't find it anywhere else, because no one can love like this. Only Jesus. This is the only love that cannot let you down. It is the love that you and I are after, what we're seeking underneath our pursuit of everything else. We want this kind of acceptance, this kind of inexhaustible mercy. If this gospel is an active reality in our lives, then we will be a person of integrity. Christ will be formed in us, as Paul writes. We will, we will be people of prayer. We will express kindness to others who mistreat us. If we have this love and this Savior in our lives, we'll be a little more like him. Look at him dying in the dark for you. Let it melt you into his, into his likeness. So when they came seeking him, he said, who is it that you want in John 18? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. Having endured this ordeal in Gethsemane, he now faces them and says, I am he. I'm ready. I have endured the worst of it, even worse than the cross. Let us pray. Our precious Savior, we thank you that you held fast in that garden while the disciples were asleep. Oh, Father, we thank you that you let him go and didn't grasp to yourself, as any father would, the love of a son like this, and say, no, it's too much. The cost is too great. We begin to see a little bit tonight of the heaviness of the cup from which he drank and how much it pained him to be separated from his father. And we are stunned, amazed that we who sleep could be loved like this that there would be one who would love us all the way down, all the way to the end, to the full extent of whatever would face him. 
And this is our Savior. We smile in his presence and rejoice. We thank you, Lord, for Jesus in Gethsemane. And we pray in his name. Amen.